come to the pasture, verdant and sweet. Jesus is leading you, come rest at his feet. Come to the waters, peace there awaits. Comfort for weary souls, hope for the my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me in righteous paths, his table lacks not. Though dark be the valley, and long be the night, his rod and staff comfort me, his presence is light. Are you tired, running after empty things? Are you missing joy, chasing after earthly dreams? Oh, sister, are you lonely? Do you feel the ache inside of your is leading you come rest at his feet come to the waters peace there awaits comfort for weary souls hope for the faint the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want he leads me his paths, his table lacks not. Though dark be the valley, and long be the night, his rod and staff comfort me, his presence is light. And I will fear no evil, for Jesus is with me. I will sit at his table before my enemies. Come to the pasture, verdant and sweet. Jesus is leading you. Come rest at his feet. Come to the waters, peace there for weary souls, hope for the faint.
Well, that's my sister right there. And uh, she wrote that song, the words and the music. And uh, I heard it. I heard her sing it through Mom's phone. And uh, and I thought that'd be a great blessing to our church. And uh, so I asked her if she'd come and sing it for us today. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, Turn your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 in your Bibles here this morning. Of course, our theme for the year is honoring the Lord. I will honor God. And we've talked about that a few times. We've looked at God's Word to see what it means to honor God. We've, as we've studied that idea, that thought, that Bible truth, we've learned that to honor, the word honor means to give weight to. And so I can honor my flesh, which would mean I would give weight to what I'm feeling, my, my lustly desires. I can choose to honor myself, or I can honor God. I can give weight to His Word. And the truth is, every one of us, we uh, designate a valuation to things in our lives. We value his word. Everybody here values his word to some degree. And yet, in in my life this week, I might be in a position where where I'm going to have to make a decision. In fact, all of us will be in a position this week where we have to make a decision. I'm either going to give more weight to what God says, how he's leading me by his spirit within me, Or I'm going to give more weight to what I want, what I crave, what I desire, what I see with my eyes. And and when I choose to honor myself, I dishonor God. And when I choose to honor God, I, I truly am dishonoring myself to a degree, my flesh. And so we're commanded to honor God. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse number 30, God makes this statement to his People, the nation of Israel, it's applicable to you and to me. He says, Them that honor me, I will honor. And they that despise me, which means to pull down, them that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. And so there is a truth for you and for me to ponder. We've pondered that truth before. We learned that honoring God involves presenting our best to the Lord. Are you presenting your best to the Lord? Are you presenting the leftovers? Honoring God involves presenting our best to the Lord. Honoring God means that I must keep Him as the one that I please. I like to please people. Um, I didn't think it was as strong an urge as as it is until I began to pastor. And I found out real quick, I like to make everybody happy. I want to give everybody what they want. I want it to be done in such a way so everybody's happy. And I came into a conflict pretty quickly, not with an individual, but within my soul and my spirit. Was I going to choose to please people, or was I going to choose to please God? Honoring God means that I must keep him as the one that I please. And then we also learn that honoring God involves an acceptance of life's challenges. And you know, none of us like pain, right? God made us a certain way. You know, when you reach out and you touch something, it's hot, you you recoil from it. Pain, we all recoil from pain. We're we're prone to trying to avoid hardship. And I'm not saying, and, and I'll say it this way, nobody in their right mind goes running headlong into a 
tribulation or a trial. No one does that. No one seeks to do that in their right mind. But a child of God who is honoring God can honor God going through affliction and trials. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and much of 2 Corinthians for that matter, Paul is talking to the church at Corinth about going through trials and tribulation. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it really is a personal testimony of the Apostle Paul of how he was able to endure hardship, suffering, uh, rejection, personal attacks, and slights. And Paul gives a personal testimony under the inspiration of God of how he was able to honor God while being afflicted, while being hurt, while suffering. And so the message this morning, if I were to give it a title, it would be this, Honoring God in Hard Times. How do we honor God in hard times? Let's look at our text, 2 Corinthians chapter number 4. I'll begin reading in verse number 6. I'm going to read down through verse number 18. The Bible says this. Remember, Paul is the penman. He's writing down the words of God. It says in verse 6, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, that's talking about creation, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's God's salvation in us. Verse 7. But we have this treasure, this immense treasure that he just talked about, in earthen vessels. And the words earthen vessels, you know what it means? It means clay pots. Clay pots. Average, run-of-the-mill, everyday, breakable, replaceable, usable clay pots. And Paul's talking about himself, and he says, we have this immense treasure, the truth, the salvation of God, the gospel, the death of Christ, the, the burial of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. We have this glorious, life-saving, life-changing truth in this. In this. Just an old clay pot. And he says that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. This is by design. God gave Paul understanding and a relationship with him and fellowship with him because he knew if Paul had it, God would get the glory. Because when people looked at Paul, they said, he's not a very good speaker. Paul is really ugly. He was just a clay pot. But people could not deny that he had the power of God. Look at verse number 8 and verse 9 as he testifies of what he was going through. He says, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed. We don't know what to do, but in, not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. The suffering is what he's talking about. That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Verse 10, I could summarize it this way. Paul is saying, 
I'm, God has brought suffering into my life so that other people can see the Lord Jesus Christ through me. If you're suffering here this morning, and maybe, maybe it's not you who are suffering, maybe it's a loved one who's suffering, but you're suffering in their suffering. Isn't that right? We bear one another's burdens. It's been several months, but we were in a staff meeting, we were talking, and Pastor Burden made the comment, I'm not going to, I can't think I can quote him exactly, but he made the comment, he said, I just feel like there's this, this uh, heavy blanket on our church of suffering, or something like that, he said. And, and as pastors, we, it's, it's not just one family or one individual, it's multiple families and different kinds of suffering, and, and so we help, we bear that, we, I can't go through a day without thinking about some of the burdens that you're bearing multiple times a day and it weighing and having to give that over to the Lord. But he tells us in verse 10, always bearing about the body of the dying of the Lord, Jesus, the suffering of the Lord. I'm bearing it too, Paul says, that the life also of Jesus might be made obvious, manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. Suffering is so that Christ can be made obvious. Verse 12, so then death worketh in us, but life in you. Paul says, we're suffering so that you can have life, church at Corinth. We have the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak. Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you, for all things are for your sakes. That's an amazing statement. That the abundant grace might, through the thanksgiving of many, redound to the glory of God, for which cause we faint not. For though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, seems like it's never going to end, the affliction but it's just for a short period of time, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Three times in this passage, Paul uses the word doxa or glory. Or honor. And he talks about it in three different ways. He talks about it how God is a God of glory. He talks about it in the sense that, uh, the second way he talks about it in the sense that when we suffer and when God's grace is present and we are being thankful for the suffering that God is putting us through, that we actually honor God and we glorify God through our suffering. And he also talks in a third way, and that is this, that should we endure, should we choose to walk by faith, taking God at his word when things may not look good around us, that there will be a day when God will honor us. And Paul talks about all of that in this passage. Let's, Let's pray together, shall we? And then we'll look at how we can honor God in hard times. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this congregation of believers. 
Father, thank you for visitors who might be with us this morning. Father, I pray that you would use your word, and Father, that you'd encourage our hearts. Thank you for the music this morning, the congregational singing, and Lord, thank you for the trials. Lord, we have so many things to be thankful for that we often think of, the joys and pleasures and entertainment and But Lord, you put an emphasis on suffering and affliction. And Father, we understand that you have allowed these things into our lives for your glory and for our good. Father, help us, I pray, to see the afflictions and the sufferings that you have allowed into our lives the way you intend for us to see them, that you might honor us someday. Father, I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Look over, if you would, to uh, chapter 10. We'll be coming right back to our text, but look at chapter 10 for just a moment. I want to give you a little bit of background here, as we're not preaching verse by verse through the book of 2 Corinthians as of yet. I look forward to that day. But uh, we honor God, we honor God when we give weight to what he says, and when we are receptive to what he's doing in our lives. Are you receptive to what God's doing in your life? Are you receptive to what he says? And I'll ask this right up front. I'm going to ask it again toward the end of the message. But have you told God thank you for the trial? You say, well, the trial is a person. Have you thanked God for that person? Well, what they're doing is wrong. God is not the author of sin, but have you thanked God for what has happened? Say, I have a disease. Have you thanked God for that disease? You say, I'm losing a loved one, or I've lost a loved one. Have you thanked God for what's happening? You say, Seth, you're out of your mind. Yeah, you kind of have to be. The problem is, oftentimes we go through this life and we think about things from a human, fleshly perspective. And I can tell you this, Paul was able to bring honor to God through his suffering because he was thinking about things biblically. And you and I need to think, we need to view things in our life from a biblical, God-honoring perspective. So the background of this, uh, Paul... And when he writes 2 Corinthians, he's under uh, serious attack. His enemies are attacking his credibility as an apostle. They're saying things like, he's not an apostle, you can't trust him. They attacked his ability to communicate. You're in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Look there in verse number 10. Uh, He says, uh, it says, for his letters, he's talking about what people say about him. He says, for his letters... Say they are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Well, you want to encourage your pastor or your Sunday school teacher, tell him that his speech, his speaking ability is contemptible. You won't encourage him at all. It's crushing. Look at chapter 11 in verse number 6. Chapter 11 in verse 6. It says, but though I be rude in speech, Paul acknowledges this. He agrees with them. I'm not the best speaker. 
If you're looking for the best speaker, you need to go somewhere else. He says, I'm not the best speaker. I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly made manifest among you in all things. And so they're attacking his ability to communicate. It's pathetic to listen to. Nobody wants to listen to him. Do you listen to him? So hard to listen to. Now, we won't turn to it, but there's a passage where Paul was teaching, and, uh, and I believe they were on the roof of the house or in the second story of the house, and a man was standing there in the room listening to Paul teach and preach, and he fell asleep, the Bible says, and he fell out of the window, out of the building. That's why our church is on one story. Because I know some of you fall asleep, and I don't want you to fall out the window. And can you imagine me and that guy? I don't think people do this, but you know, I'm in the Bible. I'm the guy who fell out of the window, fell asleep during Paul's message. Not something to be proud of. But they were attacking Paul. They even attacked his personal appearance. Look back to chapter 10 and verse 10 again. His letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak. So hard to look at. So hard to look at. So Paul responded, not how we typically respond in defending ourselves. He embraced what they said is legitimate. Think about this. Paul had established the church at Corinth through preaching over a period of nearly two years. But not long after he left, false teachers came in and their agenda was to teach lies so that they would undermine the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And they're saying he doesn't, he's, not, he's nothing impressive to look at, his speech, he's not an imposing person, he lacks charm, he lacks personality, he lacks good looks, he doesn't have personal presence and personal power to motivate people. And you know, folks, these were the false teachers that were attacking him. And by the way, um, you and I, Should you ever find yourself in a place, maybe when I'm no longer your pastor and you're looking to call a man to pastor you, the way he speaks and the way he looks are not the most important thing. You won't be in good company if you start thinking the way these people were thinking, these Judaizers. Judaizers. Some have even suggested that he, Paul, had a rather repulsive eye deformity that made him ugly to look at. Where do they get that from? I think it's in Galatians. I think it's in Galatians chapter 4. In verse number 14 and 15, Paul says this, And my temptation which was in my flesh ye despised not, nor rejected, but received me as an angel, as a messenger of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness he spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, ye would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. Some people say because of those words that Paul had some sort of deformity in his eyes that was really kind of repulsive and hard to look at. And, and Paul writes to the church of Galatians and says, Listen, I remember when I was with you and you received me. You didn't turn me away because how I looked... These were the things that were being said. They were trying to destroy Paul as a preacher. They claimed his ministry was a failure because he was a despicable person to look at and to listen to. And Paul agreed with them. Look with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1. 
I'll read down through verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1. Paul writes, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. He says, I didn't come with great speeches, great sermons, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's the only thing he cared about. And I was with you in weakness. I love this. Look at this. Verse 3, he said, Paul says, I was with you in weakness and in fear. And in much trembling, while I was singing with the other five people this this morning, if you were anywhere in the first half of the building, you might have seen me shaking, trembling. And and you know, Paul says, he came to the church at Corinth, and there was fear in his heart. Verse 4, he says, And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and power, the power of God. There's so many books today on how to preach and how to pastor and, and how to grow a church and, and how, to, how to pastor a church that's relevant and how to pastor a church that makes a difference and, and all of these sorts of things. And, and, and pastors and teachers and, and people as a whole are being taken in by all of these things. How can we manufacture a successful church? Paul says, I wasn't interested in any of those things. His goal, his only priority was to teach and to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified and buried and risen again. And you know, if people thought he was ugly and if people thought he wasn't a good speaker and I don't know if he stuttered or stammered or whatever the case may be, it didn't matter. But Paul was under attack. They were trying to destroy him. And Paul claimed that it was these very weaknesses. Look at our text back in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It was these very weaknesses and others that allowed Christ to be magnified in him. Look at verse number 7 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, but we have this treasure, the treasure of salvation, the treasure of the truth. You think about this. It is a treasure. If you know the truth today, you have an invaluable treasure of eternal value. There are people all over today, it's not warm enough to be out in the boat yet, or some are out on the golf course maybe this morning. It's not really hunting season for anything, is it, right now? I don't think so. Maybe they're poaching, I don't know. But you know what? There are all kinds of gods of this world and it is very common in our day just to go ahead and right, live for yourself, satisfy your flesh, do whatever you want to do. And, and, and the Bible talks about how they're blinded to the truth of the Word of God. If you believe the truth of the Word of God, if you can understand it and comprehend it, if the Spirit of God is teaching you and illuminating His Word, of, word to you, you have an incredibly valuable treasure within you. The Holy Spirit who lives within you, leading you in the truth. And Paul tells us about it. He says, we have this treasure in clay pots, earthen vessels, so that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Common, everyday, ordinary, breakable, replaceable, run-of-the-mill clay pots. That's you and me. 
I hope I'm not offending you today. You have eternal value in the sense of your soul is eternal and my soul is eternal. So valuable in the eyes of God that he's willing to send his only begotten son to die on a cross for sinful men and women like you and me. And yet the truth of the matter is we're clay pots made out of the dust of the ground and to the dust of the ground will return. You know, really, God doesn't need the vessel to be important. God doesn't need the vessel to be impressive. I've heard people talk before, you know, we talk about professional athletes. Wow, if so-and-so got saved. If one of those professional athletes trusted Christ as their personal Savior, while then, while they could make a difference. There are some professional athletes who are born again. And can God use them as a clay pot to make a difference? Yes. Well, maybe if, uh, if a president of a university were to trust Christ and to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and they were the president of the University of Michigan or the University of Mi- or Michigan State University, if they were presidents of those universities, if they were to trust Christ, they could turn that university to follow the Lord. No, they'd fire them. You know, God's interested in using clay pots. He's interested in using vessels that have been broken, who he's molded back together for his honor so that he can be honored, so that he can be glorified. The reality is when a pot, a clay pot is impressive, it actually can draw glory and honor away from God. God wants and he uses clay pots. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26 Paul wrote, and he said, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty men, not many noble men are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised, hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. Why? That no flesh should glory in his presence. See, remember, God uses us. He uses earthen vessels, clay pots, to carry the message of the gospel that is beyond value. God has not required us to be perfect to be used either. If he did, he would be without any vessels outside of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Abraham, the father of the faithful, twice pretended that his wife was his sister. Moses, the deliverer of Israel, the human deliverer from Israel, from Egypt, had a fiery temper, you remember, and was, by his own admission, a completely inadequate speaker. David, a man after, the man after God's own heart, the sweet psalmist of Israel, was guilty of adultery and murder. Elijah boldly confronted hundreds of false prophets in the name of the, of the God of Israel, and then, in doubt and fear, ran for his life from the queen, Jezebel. Isaiah, who was a noble prophet, confessed to being a man of unclean lips. The apostle Peter, the leader of the twelve apostles, openly confessed that he was a sinful man and proved it by vehemently and repeatedly denying the Lord Jesus Christ while Jesus Christ was being wrongfully tried the night before he was crucified. 
The Apostle John, the Apostle of Love, he talks about love in the Gospel of John, in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, talking about love. He was also known as a son of thunder, who jealously sought to stop, stop the ministry of somebody who wasn't part of his group. Later, John indignantly wanted to call down fire from heaven to incinerate a Samaritan village that had rejected Jesus Christ, the Apostle of Love. You see, all of these men were just clay pots. Men who God had to save, who God had chosen, who needed to choose to follow God and take God at his word. And when these men did, they honored God, and God used them to accomplish tremendous, incredible things. And so the Apostle Paul in our text is just another clay pot in a long line of clay pots. That God has used. And notice in verse 8, he's under incredible and intense persecution. Verse 8, he says, we are troubled. We are perplexed. We are persecuted. We are cast down. And he's not just talking about himself, but he's talking about those who are working with him. Troubled means to press hard upon, to be in a narrow place pressured and afflicted. In other words, everywhere Paul turned, there were problems. It was like he couldn't get away from them. Have you ever found yourself in a place like that? Everywhere you look, you can't seem to escape. You go to someone who supposedly knows the answers, and they don't know the answers. Or you talk to two different people who are the professionals. They're the ones who are supposed to tell you how you can be delivered from this, and they don't agree with one another. He was troubled. He was perplexed. The word perplexed means to be without resource. In simple words, he didn't know what to do. He didn't know what to do. He was persecuted. Driven away is the word persecuted. Hunted. It has the idea of the heartache of rejection. Being rejected. And he was cast down. Literally thrown down. Nothing was working. Nothing was working. Can you identify with what Paul was going through at all? Have you ever been there to some degree? We can identify with that. And friends, I want, to, I want you to know this morning, we also need to be able to identify with the victor, victorious side of troubles and afflictions as well. As God's children, we can identify with Paul's uh, trials and his struggles. We can identify with him on that. But we, all, we must not stop there. We also need to be able to identify with him in the areas of victory. Look there again in verse number 8. He's troubled... But not distressed, not crushed, not paralyzed, not unable to move. There there are times when a person will come under such intense persecution or stress or affliction that literally they just crawl into bed and they do not get out. It's like life is not worth living anymore. They cannot go on. Paralyzed. Paul says, I'm troubled I'm in a narrow place. Everywhere I turn, there are problems. But he says, I'm not paralyzed. The same can be true for you. Perplexed, but not in despair. Despair, not in despair. He's not without a resource. He has a resource. Paul didn't didn't know what to do, but he hadn't stopped hoping in the Lord. Persecuted, he says, but not forsaken. Not abandoned. God hasn't abandoned him. And he knows that. 
Sometimes you and I get in our minds, you know what? I, I think God's abandoned me. God, do you know that I'm still here? Lord, I'm over here. God, I'm over here. <laughs> Paul says, you know, I, I, I've been persecuted, but I, I'm not abandoned, not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed. And the word destroyed means ruined. He basically says, I've been knocked down, but I'm not, I've not been knocked out. And I want to ask, ask the question this morning, and I want to answer it from the word of God, and that is, how did Paul, an earthen vessel, honor God through the trial? Look at verse number 14. Verse 14, he says this. Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. Look at it again. How is he able to honor God going through such intense persecution and affliction and hardship? And he says, I'm able to do it because I know that that God who raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you, with the church of Corinth. And so number one, remember that the ultimate victory is yet to come. Remember, when you're going through affliction, when you're going through hardship, when you look around and you can't see any way out, and when you feel, you don't feel like getting out of bed, and you're not sure that, that you can go on. Remember that this life is not all there is and that victory is coming someday. Paul, when he refers to in verse 14 there, he's talking about the fact that he knows heaven is real. And he knows that there's coming a day when sorrow and trials and hardships and tears are going to end. This life... This life James tells us, is a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. I'm not minimizing the trial. Paul's not minimizing the trial. But he says, I know that the ultimate victory is coming someday. In Psalm 16, and verse 11, the Bible says, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. We've talked about this. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you know who created and designed pleasure? God did. It's sad that our culture today thinks that the things of God are not pleasurable and the things of this world and Satan are pleasurable. The only thing Satan has to work with are things that God has created that he's twisted into something that's ungodly. At God's right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. The ultimate pleasure. God-honoring pleasure. Pleasure that is pure and righteous and godly. And Paul understands, he knows that the ultimate victory is coming someday. We have to think biblically. It shouldn't surprise us that those who are trying to live their lives without Christ are falling apart. They turn to psychiatrists and psychologists. We take drugs and some drink alcohol to try to forget the trial and try to forget the affliction. Sometimes people even take their own lives. Why? Because at the center of their being, they have no hope. Paul was under immense trial, immense affliction. The very church that God had used him to plant 
The very believers that he had won to the Lord and had poured his life into, some of them were being tempted to now turn away from him in the message of the truth of the word of God. And some of them were now going through the affliction with him. And he's looking around and his heart is breaking. And he's hurting. But Paul had hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hope that there's a future, there's a day that's coming, a day dawning where Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign for all of eternity. And if you're a child of God, you have that hope too. And rejoicing in this wonderful hope will diminish the pain of the present. It's not going to take it all away. But it will diminish the pain of the present. And our eternal hope in Christ is the anchor of our souls as we navigate this sin-cursed world in which we live. So remember that the ultimate victory is yet to come. Number two, focus on God's purpose for suffering in this life. This is very important. When you and I go through suffering, a question we often ask, and it's not wrong to ask the question, is why is this happening? And I want us all to know this morning that God does answer that question. Why do hard things happen? Why do people get sick? Why do people pass away before we think they should? Why do people, why did God allow this person to hurt that person? And now this person is scarred and they have to live with it the rest of their lives. Why? And and, and if you and I are going to honor God as we go through afflictions, we have to be able to focus on God's purpose for suffering in this life. What's his purpose? Look at verse number 15, the beginning part. And Paul tells the church at Corinth why he, Paul, was having to suffer. And he tells us in verse 15, the beginning part, for all things are for your sakes. Later on, he tells us that these things ultimately bring glory and honor to God. But in this passage, and something you and I need to embrace, is this simple truth at the beginning of verse 15, for all things, all things, are for you. They're for me. In this case, specifically, Paul, God had allowed suffering into Paul's life, specifically for the believers, the members of the the church at Corinth. Pastor Scott... Pastor Toman, that's kind of a scary thing, isn't it? And by the way, when you, when you see brothers and sisters suffering, God might have allowed suffering into their lives for you. Please make it worth it. God allows sufferings into a pastor's life, sometimes for his congregation. The reality is, is that all things God allows into our lives are for our benefit. He has a purpose for his children's suffering. Look uh, look back to chapter 1 in 2 Corinthians, chapter 1. And I'll I'll read beginning in verse 1. And and notice how Paul puts it. Notice how God uh, communicates this to us, specifically using Paul and the church at Corinth. Because... Paul wasn't the only one suffering. The church was suffering too. Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, under the church of God, which is in Corinth, 
with all the saints which are in all Achaia, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Look at verse 4. Who comforted us, us in all our tribulation, all our tribulation, the church and Paul, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble. Did you, did you get that? Sometimes God allows trouble and hardship and trials and afflictions and loss and heartache into our lives so that we will be able to comfort other people. So that we will experience His comfort and His grace to get through the trial so that then we can then comfort other believers so that God can comfort other believers through us. Now, this is not how we all want to live our lives. And if we can go back far enough in our minds, we just wanted to graduate from high school, marry that special someone, get a good job, make plenty of money, uh, have great health. Actually, we weren't even thinking about health at that point, but many of us are now. We just want to have good health and the aches and pains go away and just so we can do what we want to do and live our lives the way we want to live our lives and get out there and hunt and get out there and fish and get out there and golf and get out there and live our lives and all, don't I mention, have plenty of money to do it all and, and that's how we want it. Oh, and, and, and if we're honest with ourselves, we know that that's not how life goes. And God actually sends trouble into our lives to draw us to himself so we can help others. He says in the end of verse 4, wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings, which we also suffer. Or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. This is the Apostle Paul. I can't go on. I can't go on anymore. I can't take it anymore. It's too much. Maybe that's where you've been. Well, know that you're in good company because that's where Paul was. But Paul learned what we're studying this morning. That there was a way that he could live and a way he needed to think so that he could honor God in his affliction. You need to remember that the ultimate victory is coming someday. If you're looking for the victory in this life, you're going to be disappointed. The other day when Mr. Lawrence passed away, one of the ladies who was there in in the room uh, shortly after he had passed, we were talking about it was a good day to go to be with the Lord. It's a good day. And she made the point. She made the point. You know, every one of us that day, we, we just don't know when the day is. We just don't know when the day is. 
We knew Mr. Lawrence was getting close, but we didn't know. We don't know when our day is. You have to remember that the ultimate victory is coming someday. You have to focus on God's purpose for suffering in this life. Again, in verse number 15, he tells us the beginning part. All things happen for us. And if you and I could sit down today and we could talk about your situation, you might tell me that these things in your life have happened, are happening to you. Don't forget, God is bigger than you and me. And he actually is ordering things in our lives. They're happening for us. I have a friend, and uh, he's talked to me about losing different things that used to be very dear to him. And he made the comment that he was glad that it happened so that he could find Christ. Many of us are saved in this room, but you know what? Many of us who are saved are not thinking like a saved person. And in a very real way, it's not that you need to be saved again, but we have got to find Christ in the trial. Or you're going to be the most miserable person on the face of the earth as you blame doctors and you blame hospitals or you blame yourself or you blame others or you blame whoever. You're going to be the most miserable person on the face of the earth. God is working. They don't happen to us, they happen for us. If we go through the life focusing on all the things that, that have happened to us, we're going to look at ourselves as a victim. But if we see that everything happens for us, we'll look for the Lord in every situation. And we will see that he is actively working in our lives to deepen our faith and to prepare us to console and comfort others. It's all for us. It's all for our sake and for his glory. A.W. Tozer said this, If God has singled you out to be a special object of his grace, you may expect him to honor you with a stricter discipline and greater suffering than less favored ones are called upon to endure. Isaiah told the nation of Israel, What God had said to them, he said, Behold, God says, I have refined thee, but not with silver, and I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. God chose Israel so that through them, we as Gentiles would know God. But they had to suffer. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse number 12, Peter says this, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trials which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. Why me? By chance, I I got this. By chance, this happened. No, it's not by chance. He says, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Peter's trying to get the people to think, just don't look at this life. It's more life, eternal life. Is more than just this life. You need to focus on God's purpose for suffering. Thirdly, you need to understand, I need to understand that the grace of God and a thankful heart are intertwined, they're connected. You know, to go through trials and afflictions, you and I need the grace of God. We need the grace of God for all things, truly, our salvation and to to be who we ought to be and that victory over sin. But you know that we need the grace of God to go through affliction. And you know that God resisteth the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So, so here's the thing. If in my affliction, 
I get caught up in the why me syndrome. I don't deserve this. I deserve better. And I'll tell you that I've been there with far less trials and afflictions than many of you have gone through. So it's not hard to get there to the why me syndrome. A proud attitude. I deserve better. But you know what? When we're proud, God resists the proud. And in the middle of an affliction, the last thing you and I need to be is proud. And one of the quickest ways to humility is through thanksgiving. I prayed at the beginning, and I asked you the question at the beginning of the message this morning. Have you thanked God for the affliction? I'm not asking you, I'm not telling you you need to feel thankful. I'm not telling you that. But you need to be thankful. See, if we're looking at this, the reason for, if we miss the beginning of verse 15, that all, things, all these things have happened for our sakes, and we think they're happening to us, well, then immediately we've kind of taken God out of the equation, or maybe we even are angry with God and blame God, but we are not thankful people. Look at verse number 15, the middle part. He says, for all these things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. It'll bring honor to God. Thanks, grace, the grace of God mixed with the thanksgiving of God's people honors God. And in the context is all in a trial. The abundant grace is God's part. A thankful heart is my part. You know, when other people see that God's grace is sufficient in your life, in your suffering, we are moved to give honor and glory to God. Nothing was more important to Paul than honoring God. And so there's this key in the middle of verse 15 that really unlocks the grace of God, and the key is a thankful heart. The people of Corinth were moved to thanksgiving as they saw the grace of God in Paul's suffering. But I also find in the passages, Paul writes that Paul himself, who is the one who is suffering, has a thankful heart. I'm telling you, this is not fleshly. You need to pray even at the moment, God, help me to understand your word in this lest you leave this place and go back out to suffer or to suffer affliction in some way and still thinking, this is happening to me, instead of saying, God, this is happening for me. Paul and the Corinthian believers had come to the place where they were thanking God for what they were going through. And so I asked you again, have you thanked God for your affliction? Several years ago, there was something that had been, uh, had been a part of my life and outside of our home, but it affected me greatly. And, and frankly, I thought, it, it, this is not right, um, but it was affecting me tremendously. And it would, I thought about it, I tried to deal with it, I tried to fix it, I did everything in my hum, human power to take care of, to right the situation. And it finally came to a point in my life, and it took years, but I finally came to a point in my life where I said, Lord, even though what was done was wrong, God, thank you for allowing this into my life. I had nothing to do with it, but yet it was a part of my life. God, thank you 
for allowing this into my life. And I can tell you this, when God began to lead me down that path to thank him for that, there were several times, and it probably lasted months, where in my prayer closet I would come to that place and God was moving in my heart to give him thanks for that, which had caused me so much trouble, and I would not speak. I literally, the prayer would end, and I would move on with my day, because I was not thankful. But there had to come a point in my life where, you know what, I just understood, God, you work through people, and this has happened, it's the way it is, and Lord, thank you. You know, Paul had to come to that place in his life in chapter 12. He talks about a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet him, which has the idea of a closed fist and repeated blows to the face. And he says, for this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that he would remove it from me. God's answer was, my grace is sufficient for thee, Paul. And Paul responded, most gladly will I therefore glory in mine infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And so Paul lived with those infirmities. He lived with the messenger of Satan, striking him again and again and again to keep Paul humble, to keep Paul in a place where he was giving glory to God and depending upon the power of God. And that's where God wants us to live. We have to understand that the grace of God and the thankful heart are connected Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5 and verse 18 to give thanks. He says, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. A humble heart is a thankful heart. A proud heart is an unthankful heart. A proud heart says, I deserve better than this. You've let me down. You don't care about me. I know better than you. But a humble heart says, thank you. Again, I'm not encouraging you that you need to feel thankful. I'm asking you to give thanks. It's okay to tell the Lord, Lord, I don't feel thankful. God, I am hurting. Lord, I'm struggling with anger at people. I don't understand why you've let this happen, but obedience to your word. God, thank you. Thank you, and I want you to name it. I want you to name them. one last truth and we'll be done. It's in verse 16. We're to remember that ultimate victory is coming someday. We're to focus on God's purpose for suffering. It's all for us. We're to understand that the grace of God and the thankful heart are intertwined. You need his grace. You need to be thankful. And and lastly, you need to courageously live day by day. Live courageously day by day. In verse 16, notice what he says, for which cause we faint not. And I get from that this idea of courage. For which cause, for the glory of God, in verse 15, we faint not. Because of the grace of God, in verse 15, we faint not. But though our outward man perish, this flesh, it's all dying, every one of us in this room. Yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Are you close to giving up? Are you close to saying, you know what, I'm just not doing it anymore? Anybody who's lived any amount of time in this room has been there. 
Not necessarily giving up on living physically, though some might, but maybe giving up on God, maybe giving up on his word, maybe throwing in the towel and saying, I'm just not doing it anymore. Are you giving up? Paul had not lost courage. And God had given him the means for living day by day. And that was his grace. And God and Paul had a motive for living day by day. And that was the glory and honor of God. You see at the end of verse 15 that that the abundant grace might, through the thanksgiving of many, redound to the glory of God. Oswald Chambers said, to choose to suffer means that there is something wrong. To choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. No healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will, as Jesus did. And whether it means suffering or not. We sing a hymn, Lord, send me anywhere, only go with me. And when we sing a hymn like that, we're always thinking about Africa or South America, or to a jungle somewhere. But you know what? Sometimes God leads his people not to a foreign field, but to this land where we live to go through a tremendous suffering and affliction. Are we still willing to sing the song, Lord, send me anywhere? Lord, we belong to you. Everything that I am, everything, you, you own me, you've made me, you've saved me. I don't know how long my life's going to be. I've got plans. But God, you could change all of that. And Lord, should you choose for me to go through this trial or to lose this, Lord, thank you. Look at verses 17 and 18 and we'll be done. He says, for our light affliction, we wouldn't call it that, would we? Which is but for a moment, it's just temporary, worketh for us, for us, a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It's for our honor and our glory. While we look, that means to take heed, not at the things which are seen, not at the finances, not at the physical illness, not at the angry words or the hate-filled looks, not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. That's the word of God. That's living by faith. For the things which are seen are temporal. What we're going through is only going to last for a period of time. But the things which are not seen are eternal. They're eternal. This is how you and I can honor God through our afflictions. Paul lays it out. It's a personal testimony. Remember the ultimate victory is someday coming. Focus on God's purpose for the suffering. It's for me. It's for my sakes. You know what? That changes my attitude. I remember Cindy at one point saying to me, Seth, I sure hope you learn what God's trying to teach you. And she's right. And it wasn't said in a bad way. Sometimes I feel like I'm in the remedial class. Haven't we already been through this? And we've talked about this before. And we've prayed this way before. We've gotten our knees together as a husband and wife and prayed, God, help us to learn what you're trying to teach us. It's not not necessarily punishment. It's just he's working in me. 
and his ways are not mine. They're higher than mine. They're higher than yours. Live, by, live day by day, one day at a time, with courage. Don't faint. Don't faint. Don't give up. You, you do what you know is right. You be where you need to be. You say, you respond how you need to respond, how you ought to respond, how the Spirit leads you to respond. And he will be glorified. Psalm 127.2 says, It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he giveth his beloved sleep. Let's take our hymnals, shall we? And let's sing hymn number 494.